Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. Always nice to be back. And uh, again, I want to thank everybody for the LinkedIn comments. And a lot of people are subscribing to our LinkedIn page and sharing some ideas and also giving suggestions. And we've had some guests approach us. So thank you. We really appreciate the support and also the feedback and kind of the dialogue that happens through those platforms. Today, we're going to spend some time about admissions. We are now in October, schools have started and believe it or not, admission teams very likely are letting in the last few uh, students, but they're already thinking about the next year and numbers and markets and geopolitics and everything that comes under that roof becomes a very important aspect of the admissions journey and the admissions dynamic. How do you market your school and how do you engage larger communities to know about you and how do you turn somebody's interest into an actual commitment to join the learning community? And after that person joins, what is the role of admissions? Because it's, it's a relationship that can last 12 years if somebody comes in in kindergarten and stays, or it could be a short term. So there's just a lot of complexities to admissions. And I always like the term and is that, uh, you know, people say, oh, how does a school make money? And some schools say it very clearly, bums on seats. You need physical human beings in seats. And the more you have, the more potential income you have to give a robust and engaging learning uh, experience and a lot of the activities and a lot of the services and extracurricular things that you can do are provided by the payers. And of course, there are different types of schools. We've done a lot of podcasts about this, about the schools that are for nonprofit that basically survive on bums on seats. And then they're for profit, but they too have, need the people to come but they might have a different financial structure. But generally, international schools live off the people that come in. And it's so important to have the empathy and the understanding and the dispositions to make that experience so positive. And I just feel very privileged and honored to have our three guests. We have Heidi Reed, who's all the way in Australia. So thank you, Heidi, for being up so late. She's uh, the CEO of International Diagnostic and Admission Test. And we have Vasco Dimitrov, Senior Marketing Manager for the Faraya Education Group, and Matt Craig, who's also a manager of Faraya Education Group. And uh, they are both involved with admissions. And as many of us are familiar with the organization, uh, Faraya, and you have a product called Open Apply, which I've had the pleasure of working with. And there are a lot of other products, but that's one that many schools that would resonate. So today we're going to kind of unpack this a bit. Uh, I feel honored because uh, last year we were very honored that Faraya Group uh, sponsored our podcast. So now it's nice to have some members of the organization on an actual podcast as a guest. So welcome, Vasco, welcome, Matt, and welcome, Heidi. I'm just going to turn over to Heidi and ask her to just kind of give us a little introduction, and then we'll go to Matt and Vasco, and then we'll kind of dig into the topic. Heidi. Hi, uh, I'm Heidi Reed, and as mentioned, I'm the CEO of IDAT, and really it's one of the founding creator. And if uh, it, admissions is all about bums on seats, I guess we're about making sure that the chair is ready uh, and that we know the bum that's going to sit in those seats so that schools are really prepared for who's coming and uh, how they can best help them. Thank you. Matt. 
Matt? By all means, yeah, I'm Matt. I'm the sales and accounts manager at Open Apply. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, great. That's fine. Don't worry. I paused there on my end. But yeah, I mean, we work for Open Apply. Um, my background even then is predominantly from working in international schools. So yeah, the challenges you're mentioning, the bums on seats comments and everything else. Yeah, fully. It, it definitely is that situation. So yeah, we kind of see ourselves as the admissions nerds and just helping schools go through those processes anyway. Great. Vasco. Hi, everyone. I'm Vasco Dimitrov. Um, my background spans beyond just ed tech, uh, 15 years in, in various sectors, public and private, but the last five years have been in ed tech. Uh, I'm the senior marketing manager uh, for admissions and school to home uh, within the Farrier Education Group. And as Matt uh, might have mentioned, we just kind of focus on helping international schools and independent schools deliver a superior experience for, um, for students and families uh, and uh, beyond also alumni across the entire life cycle. So from inquiry to, to enrollment and beyond. Um, and we, we're also involved in, um, in empowering, empowering schools through um, various other initiatives, including professional development. So printed publications like the International Admissions Bulletin, which is our magazine. Keep an eye out for the latest edition, which comes out in, uh, in a couple of weeks, hopefully. And um, so conferences, webinars, etc. Fantastic. So one of the things I think that, you know, people are realizing with admissions is that there's a huge responsibility and it's quite complex because families, you know, often they have arrived in a country or they're going to be moved from their hometown or their home country to another country. That in itself brings a lot of transition and there's a lot of emotion and, and you know, complexity to that. But then they have to go and find a school. And that also sometimes can be quite complicated because different schools have different approaches and really cater to different people. Heidi, you what is interesting about your organization is you're kind of helping people understand what that chair should look like as people walk in. Talk about a bit about the importance of kind of the pre-admission work. Why is that so important? Uh in our in when we were coming up with the ideas for this podcast, I, I I really like to use the analogy that marketing schools and admissions is a little bit like Tinder for students and schools. Uh, and essentially, uh, what the IDAT does is it helps create the student profile that schools can decide if they're going to swipe left or right on. But just as important, and we'll refer to that, I, I might pass over to Matt and Vasco for that one, is the school profile and whether parents and families want to swipe left or right on it. And, and how that works is much like love, it is finding the perfect match. So if you have a, a child who's particularly artistic, you want to find a school that will foster that. If you have a child who has particular learning needs and you want a school that can support that, you're going to need to find an inclusive school where that's a priority. And I think that the real focus in admissions has to be getting the right information so asking the right questions and getting to know the student and their family, because when you admit a child, you don't just admit the child, you're bringing the whole family into your community. So asking the right questions, but also sharing the right information about who you are so that the parents' families are getting what they expect. Do they know what an IB curriculum is? Do they know what that means for their child? Do they know the difference between that and a local curriculum? Do they know how your assessment works? And 
And I think that in certain cultures, they can parents can get very bogged down in like, what's your ranking and how many students go to the top universities, but that might not be the way to find the best match. Excellent. And I think let's kind of build on that idea about, so we've swiped left or right for the student, but of course the school has to kind of put itself out there and, and give that profile. Matt and Vasco, talk a bit about that end of, of the relationship, because I think Heidi's really given us a good idea about the importance of uh, the student. But what about the school? What, how can they set themselves up for that uh, engagement? Matt, would you like to go first? Looks, no, like Vasco. looks like there's a bit of a delay on Matt's side. So let, let me just jump in then. So I think there's a couple of really important uh, factors or elements. I think um, one of them is, and Heidi kind of touched upon this, is just establishing those really clear communication channels, um, both in terms of incoming and outgoing communication so that the students and the families have all the necessary information um, and support throughout that transition process. So the, kind of the, the better the communication is, the better that experience will be, that transparency will be. Um, and I think uh, another one which I, I feel quite strongly about is actually um, assigning that dedicated support personnel and um, having that point of contact where you can offer guidance, address concerns and kind of coordinate the resources that will facilitate that smooth transition. Um, you, you know, fostering cultural awareness and integration. We talked again about kind of inclusive schools, depending on the child's background, um, their needs, aspirations, etc., um, anything from kind of international uh, student clubs or events that encourage uh, interactions among students from different backgrounds, kind of really making them feel welcome, really making them feel like they're, they're in the right community, because we talk about this kind of right fit um, analogy, and that's really what it's, what it's all about. Um, I don't know whether Matt's still frozen or not, so I'll just pause and, and give him an opportunity to, to jump in. I don't know. Maybe Matt has got a bad connection. Matt, can you hear us? Let's keep going. So I think Heidi and Thanks Vasco, one in, thing Vasco. that is... Uh, Go I ahead. Think... Matt, do you want to add to what Vasco uh, talked about, a bit about that uh, school job, profile? I think you're on mute. It looks like there's a slight delay. So let's uh, maybe yeah, let's yeah. continue and then when, when the connection speeds. Yeah, absolutely. So Vasco, one thing that you talked about is the idea of having a dedicated person associated with the family. And Heidi, I would like you to add to that too, is why is that so important? And is that dedicated person then also kind of a guide, a, guide, a mentor? Because, of course, some parents might come and ask questions about the country, the visas, the culture, uh, housing. W how broad is that role? And w do you have to be cautious on not doing too much but doing enough? What's that balance when you are in that relationship with your new admission family? I think that it's, it's quite important, as, as Vasco pointed out, to have that predetermined person who is the point of contact and to have clear avenues to reach that person. Uh, this is 
for many families, this is one of the largest decisions they will ever make. So you may invest in, in a car that you intend to have for four or five years. You may invest in a house uh, that you live in for, you know, maybe 20. But this is, you know, quite often 12 to 14 years of a family's life. And if they have more than one child and the years continue, it couldn't be more than that. So this is a very large commitment for them. And they're going to have a lot of worries and concerns. And having one point of contact that they know that they can reach is very important. I do think that in any job, no matter what we do, we always need to set boundaries, uh, says the woman who at, you know, 10 to 10 at night is having, uh, is, is participating in a podcast. But um, I do, like, it is important to have that one point of contact. But that one point of contact, a very important part of their job is also facilitating the transition of that student into the classroom. So besides being the point of contact for the parents, they need to be the person in the middle to communicate what the parents need, who the child is, what, for example, if they took a, an IDAT for admissions and then we create a profile of students, who this child is, making sure the teachers get that information, the support staff gets that information. Um, so that all of this information that admissions is gathering, they get all of this very important stuff. You know, they've got pages, there's a profile. It can't stop when the students start school. That information has to have a very clear path to transition students into the classroom. Uh, and I think that that person who's the point of contact, while they may not always be the next point of contact, they need to make sure that they're passing the baton in a really effective way. Excellent. Matt, your thoughts on uh, kind of building on Heidi's uh, input? Totally, yeah. Um, the matchmaking piece is a big one because you're not just finding the one-to-one -one connection, you're finding a huge committee, finding that connection to the one student. And as well, fitting also in not just the transition of an individual student, but the transition of that individual student to the school community as well as a classroom. So a whole load of different aspects of fit all, all tie in there quite nicely. So really, it's the admissions person's job, admissions manager, the dean of admissions to really understand what is the right fit? How does that connect in with the family? As well as helping that student and family have that excellent transition to the school so that we're setting them up, as you said um, rightly earlier, John, if they're joining kindergarten, are we talking about a year of success after a really bad transition or 15 years and then if they have another sibling, um, that, that child also joining the community too. Yeah. And I think one thing very likely, you know, having been in international schools for quite a few years, is this, this whole narrative has changed significantly. The way people are approaching admissions, it's become, I feel like it's almost a science and you have much more research and data. And of course, with AI, the, the, the data sets that you can work with, having worked with Open Apply, I know that's been always really helpful. Vasco, talk to us a bit about that change. What, what, what is changing in the admissions world? Is, is it now very different than say 10 years ago? I would say absolutely. As you said, you know, we can now leverage certain technology that, that was either not available or just not as widespread in the past. Um, whether that be the really kind of futuristic stuff like the machine learning and AI or, or something scaled a little bit, a little bit, you know back from that just using things um, like digital streamlining going online going paperless um, incorporating some sort of some level of marketing automation 
um, some kind of some level of analytics, um, you know, that getting that granularity in terms of the process and just taking advantage of, of technology in order to, to facilitate that superior kind of form of communication, um, but also the insight piece as well. So understanding the families through the analytics, understanding the, the um, you know, the, the engagement with prospects through things like lead scoring, or you can really prioritize the, those students and families that are most likely to convert in order to give them the necessary support at the right time in that life cycle. So I would say for sure, technology has completely revolutionized how admissions um, ha happens now versus a decade ago. Yeah, if, if, I, if I can follow on from Vasco's point, John, as well. Um, yeah, please. Well, years ago, you could ask a dean of admissions at a large international school around the world and ta like get them to describe their forecast. And it would be almost akin to explaining their dark arts, magic, crystal ball. Oh, this is what usually happens per year. But of course, nowadays, they have, schools have the ability to look back historically and say, well, this is what we typically expect. It went down during the pandemic. What should we expect and build a whole bigger picture to support that whole narrative? And as you can imagine, if it's a not-for-profit school or for-profit for school, significant benefits and forecasting for that so they can know who to hire, who they have to let go, or what the situation can be. It's interesting because I think when you say that, I feel that admissions is actually more than the admissions department. It's a broader commitment. And maybe, Heidi, you can talk to that because having been a school administrator and in leadership teams, often people didn't want to hear, oh, the numbers are down, we need to increase numbers. Uh, and, and that kind of more economic disposition of budget and we need to get more bums in the seat. And often there was a bit of, you know, not friction, but there was some different feelings of, should that be the focus? Should we not be focusing on learning only? But I think nowadays we're starting to realize and talking to a lot of other uh, people in this industry and yourselves, I get a sense that admission responsibility is broad. It's the whole community. Heidi, do you want to talk to that a bit? Well, I, I think I might be showing my age here a bit, but certainly when I first started working in schools, it's like business and sales was a dirty word. Uh, you know, no, I'm an educator. You know, no, I, you know, we educate, we, we, you know, these, you know, if you referred to uh, potential parents as customers, it was like, oh, you know, it was, you know, locker, locker up. Uh, but I think that the world has become savvy that everything is business. I used to say as a teacher, I'm a salesperson, I'm selling math. I am telling students, this is the math you need, and this is what you're going to do with it. But wait, there's more. So every teacher is a salesperson. And everyone who works in a school is you have to spread the news about who you are if you believe in it. And if you don't believe in it, well, then you probably shouldn't be there. So every teacher, every um, cafeteria lady, every support staff, every school nurse is should be selling your school in some way because you have a mission vision values. That's a business term, but you have it. And everyone ought to jump on board that train and be able to share it. And admissions is a huge part of that. Why? Because they're the banner wavers. They're the people out the front with the banner of whatever it is that you've created, sharing that. And if there's any like breakdown in communication and they're, they've got a banner that says something different than what's actually happening in the school, then you've got some real problems that you need to discuss. So admissions is, you know, they're out the front, they're the receptionist. Uh, they're the person that's welcoming students to the school, but they're part of such a, a 
bigger organization. And I, I, I used to say that um, in admissions, you only ever hear about when you get it wrong. So, you know, you can get it right 99.5% of the time. And the 0.5, that time that a student who you couldn't support or a family that wasn't on board got in, you heard about it. Um, so it all comes back to you're all part of the community. And, and, you know, John, all of us, we've worked in various aspects in school from teaching to admissions to marketing, all of the different things you do. If you're not all a team on that, then you're, you're doing a disservice to the family, but also to the school. Vasco and Matt, I'll let you also uh, jump in here because I think this is really interesting to kind of think of it as a, a broader responsibility across the whole community, uh, the school community. Thanks, John. Matt, would you like to go first? I know you were, your signal was cut off earlier, so. Thanks, Thanks. Yeah, I'm letting me get in while I can, while the signal is good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you're quite you're you're quite right. It is a full community aspect of it, and any good admissions team has got their ears and hands to the ground. They know what's happening, and they're integrated into everything that's happening. The same with marketing alignment. So they're talking the talk as well as walking the walk. Um, they're the ones that would typically be joining every single other meeting that they possibly can to understand that in good detail, in order to give the parents the best understanding and expectation of it. Um, all for ultimately, as Heidi put it earlier, for the betterment of a young child. Um, that's how we integrate them into it. But yeah, Vasco, don't know if you want to carry on from there. Yeah, just just a really small point to add. Really, we talk about kind of fostering this sense of belonging when, when we talk about selling the school and having that alignment of mission and vision. Um, so far, we've kind of touched upon more kind of the staff side of things, but I think it's important to mention the students themselves as well. Them kind of embodying the principles and values of that school. And even incorporating initiatives like um, buddy and mentorship programs where current students can support and guide new arrivals, um, especially for transitions from, from you know, another, another country or another culture, just helping them kind of navigate the social aspects of school life. And again, just kind of foster that sense of belonging. So that mission and vision and the kind of entire mindset, you know, permeates deeper than just the staff. It, it goes into the entire student body and student community. That really resonates the idea of having the students as part of that narrative, because I think there's nothing greater than a kid coming to a school. And of course, and nothing wrong with admissions people, but if you have a peer and, and there are things that, you know, a peer is going to share that an admissions person might not, you know, like the soccer, the things, you know, we tend to focus on curriculum, but for a, a fifth grader or a year five kid, the, the extracurricular activities or what happens at break time is going to be really important. I've had experience being in advertising sales in the, in the newspaper industry and the television industry. And Heidi alluded to it, you know, sales has a bad name, you know, kind of it's, it's a dirty word. Is the selling of a school to a group of human beings that are going through a huge transition, should one even call it sales? I mean, what, 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 you know, how do you create that connection where, of course, you want them to come to your school, but you don't, it's not like selling a car or when I was selling advertising space or, you know, videos or whatever. It was very different. It was a product. But here we're dealing with very delicate, complex, nuanced human beings. How, how does one juggle that, you know, kind of sales aspect, the pressure to get the numbers in, but also being mindful that we're dealing with something very different than a product? I would love to hear from maybe Vasco, Matt, and then Heidi. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess when we think about sales, we, we typically, whether it's correct or not, um, subconsciously, we think about a kind of transactional interaction. We think about oftentimes even like a physical product being sold. And that's where it kind of has that kind of cold and impersonal um, um you know, uh, connection, but really it's, it's more kind of the business development rather than the sales. It's the relationship building. It's, it's, it's relational rather than transactional. And so sometimes we, we, we just jump to a conclusion when we hear that word, because we think of that cold and kind of impersonal transactional kind of relationship. And that's not really not what it's about. Um, so that I, I guess I'd like to start with that. Matt, if you'd like to add to that. Yeah, totally. And obviously being like the sales manager here and also coming from a background admissions, <laughs> I know this very, very well. <laughs> Um, it shouldn't be a dirty word, but funnily enough, in many situations, it still very much is. And I think Vasco got the nail on the head where it's there, it's loaded. But as, as long as people realize that really what happens from a parent perspective is every interaction, and that's even pre- prior to admission, pre-inquiry, even before the family have even contacted the school, the sales process has essentially begun. They've dove, they've dove through the website. Um, you talked about peers earlier, John, like speaking to peers. Um, what is the first thing parents are going to typically do for a school? Look at reviews, look at Google reviews, do some research, dive into it in much more detail. So I think the whole aspect of sales in general, and this is a conversation for another podcast for another day, um, is essentially needing to be redeveloped and modernized to understand what we're trying to do is essentially just build a connection. Um, we mentioned fit earlier. I think fit is the biggest primary component. Because there are many situations where being a school admissions manager in a school, I was there speaking to families saying, from what you tell me about your child and from speaking to him yourself, myself, this is not the school for you. You need this, this, you need to play rugby. We don't even have rugby. You need, (laughs) oh, do you want to go skiing? We don't do a ski trip. All those different facets need to come into play in the conversation. And again, it's all essentially about setting up that child for future success. And that happens from the very first interaction in the admissions process, which is essentially a qualification process to understand if that family is a good fit to buy into what essentially we are selling, which is a quality education potentially for their child. Thank you. Heidi? I, I'm just, so from, from my point of view, I, I went from being an educator so uh, to pure almost sales because I created the international diagnostic and admissions test. And I always like to start a meeting with any school that I'm speaking to about my, my, the assessment and what we do as saying, look, I'm still an educator first. And I think that anyone else who's in a school and working in any, in any part of the school has to put the education and the child first. So while sales, relationships, all of those things are still super important, I'm, I'm quite open at a sales meeting where I'm talking about the IDAT to say, I am here to tell you what it is we do. And if it fits, I really want you to use this with your school. But if it doesn't, tell me what would and you know and I might know something that does or maybe someday I might have the product that does but ultimately it's the same when a student is applying to a school as Matt was saying if they come into a school and that student doesn't fit you're servicing no one by by admitting that child or looking for that bum to join your seat because success is not getting the child into the school success is getting them out the other end as a successful productive contributing member to society and the community that's why we're there so 
admissions job doesn't stop when they've signed the contract and bought the school uniform. The admissions job continues throughout. And I love that about admissions in international schools is that international school, like head of admissions and deans of admissions, they know the students because they spent so much time investing in meeting the family and getting to know them that on graduation day, it's like their graduation day as well. They get to see this family, this student, and particularly the troubled student. So the student that you took on that no one else wanted to, and you said, no, no, I think we've got what this student needs. I think that's a really special relationship when you know you can make the fit, do what it's supposed to do, which is to support each and every individual student. Thank you. Yeah, that, wonderful. Vasco. Just one more point to add on the on the subject of sales. We you know we kind of look at it from a kind of financial perspective, of course, you know, inevitably. Um, and when we think about sales, you think about something of, of finite value or, or even most likely something that will depreciate in value. But a, a way that you can kind of reframe that is to look at it as an investment. So it's really an investment in education. It's it's an investment in the child's future. There are all, all the long-term benefits that come with, with a high-quality education from an institution where the child fits perfectly in terms of the alignment with their own aspirations so i would just i would just kind of try and reframe that as often as possible as an investment rather than a sale uh, in terms of avoiding that dirty word um, and then secondly about it being a partnership so it's really it's really a partnership between the family and the school um, a commitment a long-term commitment and a partnership rather than this kind of cold clinical sale I think your point's really important. I think we're just using the wrong vocabulary and the wrong labels. And I think also what I really liked was Matt saying that if the child needs something and you can't provide that, be up front. And, and you know, you can still actually gain a lot of social and political capital if you say, we're not the right fit, but let me get you into contact with a school that can fit. That in itself, as a customer or as a parent, I'm thinking, wow, they actually cared. They were transparent. They care about me beyond the fact that there's now not going to be a bum on the seat. And I think that can be very powerful because international schools are kind of a community and word goes and a lot of parents move from or they go back to their company. Maybe there's somebody else in the company that that's a good fit for them. And so definitely that really resonates. Uh, and the idea of the language that we're using and kind of this idea of uh, you know, the, the word sales, I love the word investment and that idea of partnership. Mm -hmm. And so often words have a very uh, kind of create an assumption and we get into feelings and, and perspectives because of the vocabulary word more than what is, what is happening. So thank you all for highlighting that. One thing that, you know, in our podcast, we've had a lot of conversations about for-profit and non-profit schools. These are two huge approaches. And over the years, the for-profit organizations have really expanded their reach and are providing excellent education. But it's a very different type of uh, approach than a school that's non-profit and might be just one school than, say, a school that has many campuses around the world or even many campuses in a country. Is the admissions dynamic different or admissions is admissions? Maybe Matt, you can start off with that. Sure, yeah, John. Um, it's an interesting question because just like every answer in admissions, it depends. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's very difficult. I imagine it would be very different across every geopolitical landscape because you can have a not-for-profit school that was built by its founders, maybe previous families that built the school together. 
And similarly, you could have a for-profit school that was built the exact same way in a very similar dynamic with a board just next door. Um, I think they were under different constraints. Naturally, if you're thinking more so about a modern school where they're setting up a new for-profit school today, competing against a highly established not-for-profit school in the local area, naturally the competition is going to be quite different. It all fits into how that school can really, really benefit itself and provide that, I guess, in its vision and values. And if the family really buys into that, I guess that's the ultimate big piece there. Thank you, Matt. And Heidi, you wanted to add to that. So because, so the, the international diagnostic admissions and admissions test, really what it does is it creates a profile of incoming students. It's not just about their academics, but it's about uh, how they like to learn, um, you know, levels of comfort to do different things, but certainly academics are in there as well. And we find it quite interesting how these two different groups of schools use what we have. Uh, so we have some schools who are using the IDAT for competitive reasons. So they have a limited number of spaces. Uh, they're using the IDAT to decide who meets the academic uh, requirements, uh, who meets the language requirements, um, and, and then, uh, you know, and combining that with other factors that admissions would, would, would look at, so extracurricular, et cetera. They're, they're using the profile that we create with the profile that they create to target students that they think will succeed within their organization. The philosophy behind the creation of the IDAT though, was that it is for all students and how to support their individual needs. So we, in this profile, we talk about their strengths and weaknesses and how much support they will need in each of the areas of learning. And we find the not-for-profit schools are much more likely to use that side of the diagnostics to create learning plans and independent uh, plans to help students from that first day of class. As, as a teacher, I used to say it took me about three months to really get to know a student who was sitting in front of me. So to have this profile when they come in and know that, okay, they're going to need some reading support. They've got, you know, they've got, they've got some issues with phonics, whatever's going on there uh, to help and support them. So while we have a product uh, that uh, is doing different things, at the end of the day, at every single one of these institutions, that profile is being used to support their learning, whether it's at a higher end, uh, whether it's an inclusive school or what it's doing. So I do think that regardless of profit, not for profit, everyone is pretty invested, using Vasco's term, everyone is invested in the future of each of these students, regardless of whether the school is trying to make money off it or not. Yeah, and that's so important because you want the community and especially the parents to continue coming to the school and there's that long-term relationship. Matt, you talked about geopolitics and I think that's really interesting in the current climate with everything that's going on. How much is the, you know, are you noticing patterns by certain geographic areas or are there some standard just practices. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. They just are true good admissions approaches. Vasco, maybe you can address that and then let Matt also jump in. Sorry, I was on mute there. Um, before I go into geopolitics, just in terms of the kind of non-profit and for-profit um, kind of juxtaposition, I think an interesting thing to consider is the kind of short-term or longer-term approach. I mean, when you're dealing with for-profit schools, there's maybe an element of greater competition. And there's, you know, 
I don't know if this is necessarily the elephant in the room, or it's pretty obvious, but um, the, the focus on kind of closing the deal or, or kind of focusing on the revenue side of things, the enrollment numbers, if you're a for-profit school versus a non-profit school, which might focus a little bit more about the kind of um, alignment of values and the commitment to the school's educational philosophy. You know, the, the, the for-profit school is going to be a bit more influenced by the financial bottom line. And therefore, in terms of the, the way that they market themselves, that recruitment strategy might perhaps be a bit more aggressive um, where, where the focus is, is more on enrollment numbers. Um, another factor is kind of things like um, scholarships and financial aid. Uh, nonprofit schools will have obviously a greater commitment to providing financial aid and scholarships to align, uh, align with their mission. Uh, for-profit schools might also offer it, but the decision will be influenced more by kind of revenue and, and other factors. So I think that that's quite a, kind of a, uh, an interesting juxtaposition. In terms of the, the geopolitical side, um, I'll, I'll let Matt answer that, just working in sales and dealing on, on with schools on a day-to-day basis more than I do. Okay, thank you, Vasco. Matt? Yeah, I won't go too much into the for-profit, not-for-profit. I think we've talked about that one enough. But I mean, yeah, it's an interesting concept. Geo, uh, I mean... The situation globally at this minute in time, as you can imagine, is constantly fluctuating. Um, think about the significant growth of international schools across Asia, um, South, Southeastern Asia. Um, it just goes to show how many more international schools are opening up there as alongside for Europe. But I mean, you mentioned like the aspect of good practices, but I do think that previously what schools would do is just focus on their local community and maybe get a little bit of information, put it out and hope for the best. But now schools, no matter what they are, if they are opening up, are consistently focusing on offering a high quality family user journey through the admissions process to really stand out from the competition. Um, Because it's the only way you can, really. If you already have established schools that have been there and have been going through it that potentially have wait lists and significant wait lists, how do you then offer that little extra thing that allows families to really gel with the vision for a new school that's creating it from there, from scratch. Otherwise, schools really are just trying to get the most out of what they use for insight, for forecasting, and trying to make it as easy and frictionless as possible. Parents are busy. How many accounts have we all got nowadays? And how many have we created during the pandemic as everything shifted online? But to be fair, it's worked in everyone's favor so that it's almost like a leveling field in that respect. And it's probably also another area where in the future AI will come in and level the playing field even more for a wider perspective for parents as well as um, smaller schools comparing to big schools. Yeah, that's interesting how uh, you bring up this idea of AI and how that might recalibrate certain things. What You know, over the years, uh, when you think of international schools, and I'm dating myself, you know, from the 60s and 70s, <laughs> not that I was educator at that time but they were very much you know there'd be one school in a city often associated with an embassy or maybe uh some organization or even corporations but now you see if you go to recruitment fairs there's a prolifery of schools they're just you know and matt alluded to that you know kind of the asian market and i know that certain areas of the world and europe maybe not as much what are some of the key patterns that you've noticed in the shift in the way schools are growing and maybe some schools are shrinking in size. I was in, uh, in Switzerland. I know there are two schools that had satellite campuses and they closed them down because of numbers. So that often can happen. Or maybe you have a campus across the city and then you consolidate. What are some of the, the, these patterns that maybe school leaders, because we have a lot of school leaders uh, can 
real, uh, you know, that are listening to this, what might be some things you would like to share, Vasco? Uh, so from a geopolitical perspective, I think the kind of the geopolitical reputation of a country um, can definitely impact how the education system is perceived globally. So talking when Matt touched upon, you know, the kind of growth of schools in the Asia Pacific region, you know, just just the kind of um, connection with, with the growing economies of certain countries and the reputation they have as being pioneers, perhaps in technology. If we look at countries like Japan, et cetera, I think that can, can definitely influence public perception and therefore lead parents to um, pursue, you know, a school in a particular region. Um, again, you know, that kind of perception of quality of the education system. So that's that's the positive geopolitical relations. Then, of course, you unfortunately have perhaps negative ones, whether it be to do with war and safety concerns or whether it be to do it with any other kind of reputational elements, it's important to look at both sides and not just what might attract, but also what might detract families from, from um, pursuing a particular uh, region. Thank you. Heidi? I'm, I'm also seeing like quite a, a, a move away from that traditional, what's your ranking and how many students get into the Ivy League. You're seeing a lot more parents who are being more in tune to their child and looking for that well-rounded like the IB curriculum was very interesting for for a long time people liked the IB but parents didn't really understand it they 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 were like oh yeah oh it's IB okay and then when their child got into the IB school they're like well where's their exam where's their assessment you know um uh, because they wanted you know something structured more closely to the local curriculum so I do think that parents are, are looking for more happiness in their children and this is something that I think admissions can sell because we have a lot of schools doing a lot of really wonderful things in the community. And I think that now that the focus, when you take it off, you know, what's your ranking and how many students got into the Ivy League, there's a lot more that you can get from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Matt. I was just going to add as well, like years ago, I always used to be an education consultant and I'm probably dating myself to a different degree anyway. <laughs> but before then it was someone at Goldman HR saying, hi, we've got someone from Goldman moving here, find them the best possible international school. This is what they want. But nowadays, when you also think about the shift and the differences, um, case in point, um, you were mentioning Switzerland earlier, John, Switzerland, Canada are becoming huge educational institutionalized areas with really high quality education that parents are choosing to go to for all of the above reasons. Do they need to go for better quality of life, better access to education, better access to everything else that their particular family or child needs? And combining all of that, instead of it just being, we're going here, we go to this school because the embassy said I go to this school. That still does take place, however. Um, but naturally, even then, what those schools are still trying to do is make it seamless, make it streamlined, and then provide the high quality transition knowing that that family may be going to another similar school in a different country in two years time and likewise returning again in three years time. So changes. I, I, yeah. it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, what's so reassuring is that this, you know, you, the word, you know, the idea of high quality school, a whole child. So there's definitely this, these terms that you're working with that, you know, are reflecting what you're seeing in the market, I think is fantastic. And especially Heidi talking about, you know, parents are want their kids to be happy. Uh, you know, that's so important because there are a lot of pressures. And, you know, when you live abroad, et cetera, it can be quite complicated sometimes. Uh, you, you know, some parents might perceive not being in the home country, their child's missing out on certain opportunities. 
you, Matt, had talked about reviews. Now, reputation. So, you know, everybody's on social media. Uh, all schools have WhatsApp groups that go viral. There are some Facebook posting and, you know, marketing teams are always kind of keeping a close eye. How much is this reputation, you know, the one that you control and the one that kind of goes viral? Maybe talk a bit about that. You know, how do admission teams and marketing teams set themselves up and how important is it to monitor those WhatsApp groups and those other conversations that happen organically, not where the school is controlling it. I would love to hear some of your thoughts as experts in, in the world of admissions and talking to so many schools and school leaders and educators around the world. I'll let whoever wants to jump in first, I'll just, you know, go for it. Matt, do you want to start? Because you brought up the reviews. So I feel like it's something. That, yeah. yeah. Cool. I'm happy to join. It's an interesting conversation, and I'm sure that if anyone cracks it perfectly, everyone will want to will know that. Um, <laughs> as you can imagine, there's tons of risk involved in doing it, but I guess all that schools can really do from that perspective is, is be aware, be responsive, listen and respond, just like um, any decent business. As long as positive steps are changing, as long as it's clearly communicated to the school, leadership stakeholders whole school community and to upcoming new families there's many families that will be very very receptive to that transparent and organically growing process naturally um when you think about situations like um um the black lives matter um ongoing social media campaigns that many schools were um having to take part or not take part but get involved with as well those are key examples where if they're not listening to the school community it can then lead to a much broader discussion and it can quickly spiral out of control so as you can imagine pr marketing and um the savviness of being aware and being involved and timely is is definitely in there but naturally there's also the aspect where if you would search any school review you will find a one-star review of a grade four student saying that maths lesson was boring <laughs> yeah so pinch of yeah salt. absolutely yeah vasco uh, i like john when you mentioned you know things that are within our control versus things that, that go viral that aren't of course you know things like um, maintaining high academic standards the reputation of like academic excellence these are definitely things that the school can control you know the faculty quality the competence and expertise of the staff it's fully within their control to you know hire the right staff for the job um and and, and kind of um control to a high degree their reputation in that regard even things like facilities and resources having you know state-of-the-art facilities modern technology well-equipped classrooms whether it's for, for the academic side or for sports or if it's like a school for, for the arts etc performing arts etc um but then there are things that, that can go viral you know they, they are things like the actual student experiences themselves which as matt alluded to sometimes it can be something as ridiculous as a child finding a class boring um, years ago, I worked in the travel sector and, and, and something as, 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 as ridiculous as the weather being bad when someone was on vacation actually affected the, the review of that hotel. You know, you can imagine how, how things can really kind of <laughs> spiral completely out, out of control. Um, but, but of course, you know, things like parent satisfaction, you know, parents become actually the strongest advocates for the school, even more so than the students, depending on the age of the child. Uh, you know, word of mouth travels fast. So, so there is that. Uh, ensuring that, you know, Matt mentioned the, the Black Lives Matter movement, the diversity and inclusion and just being mindful of some of these wider kind of global trends um, can can limit the the extent to which a negative viral reputation can can um, 
flourish, for lack of a better word, as opposed to a positive one. Thank you. Heidi, from your conversations. I think from, from a teacher's perspective, we, we try to show students that affirmation comes from within and not externally. So it's about believing in yourself and not waiting for likes on Facebook. So if a school focuses on doing the right thing, most of the time, all of that stuff, I'm not saying you don't actively market or you don't have campaigns for this, but I'm saying a lot of the negative stuff won't happen because if you focus on what your mission is and doing the right job, you might get a student who thought your math lesson was boring, but you also got a hundred students who had this great educational experience for every student that thought the, the lesson was boring. So I do think we need to be careful in a world where information is like that and everyone can see everything that we don't focus too much on what other people think of us, but in what we think of ourselves and believe in what we do. And that's the message we pass on to every 13 year old girl, uh, but do we model it and live it as an organization? And I think that schools, marketing, admissions, everybody needs to model it as an organization. Believe in who you are. Don't worry about what it looks like all day long. Yeah, and I think that idea of focusing on the mission and the values and that being your moral compass or your pedagogic compass is so important because I think if it's very strong, then those things don't have as much importance. So thank you for highlighting that. One thing is, if you had a new school leader that comes into a school and they want to kind of understand what is, what do they have to get their head around with admissions? If, you know, there are many of uh, educators that uh, go from school to school. We talked about geopolitics. We talked about the economy and many different aspects. But what are some of the things that a school head, so it's not admissions, not marketing, the school leader, director, principals, what are some things, and even teachers, I think, would be also in that group, the non-admissions team, what are the things that they have to really understand and engage with to really make this admissions uh, a success? I'll start with Vasco. Well, I think it's really important to just understand the mission and vision of the school, the kind of cultural nuances. As you say, they're not coming from that admissions angle, from that marketing angle. But if, if they're not aligned with, with the school's greater you know, mission and aims, then, then, then it's going to be a challenge from the start. So really understanding the school's identity and the values, um, especially if they're in a high position like a head of school or a principal, they, of course, have the power to make changes. And so they have to thoroughly understand the school's mission and values and selling points. Again, that, that dirty word sales before they, uh, before they make any decisions that might ultimately trickle down to the admissions process. Um, you know, they have to understand and, uh, and evaluate the current admissions practices as well, of course. Um, but before that, it's really about the kind of mission, mission and values. Um, and then also they have to collaborate with the admissions team in order to understand how these practices work. They have to, they have to be involved to some extent with that with that team um, and to, to work closely with them to ensure alignment between those greater kind of senior leadership school objectives um, and kind of foster that collaborative approach through, I guess, regular meetings uh, and just make that, make that a practice and a habit. Matt? Totally. Um, I definitely agree with that. And there's many times where I've stood in a room full of um, leaders in the education sector. And I remember also asking for a show of hands and who was actually actively involved in their admissions process. I used the word actively involved instead of just going, give me the numbers, um, if that's an aspect of it. But I think one of the most important things is definitely to get them to realize that they are admissions as well. They are sales. They are an important stakeholder in that process that should really own it. 
um, they're not just helping to establish that vision in the classroom that then goes into marketing, that goes into admissions, that then builds the conversations internally amongst their wider teaching team, but they're also involved in understanding and helping the admissions team th find out who are the best fit students, who are the students that we can really take further and beyond, who are the students that we should be more mindful of supporting and how could we have much more visibility of them earlier on. And I think there's a lot more school leaders now that are trying to get involved in the earlier parts of the conversation instead of just getting the 10 bums that they then have to assess to then understand, okay, how do we cater for these 10 students with their varying levels of significant potential need? Um, instead, bring the conversation early and from their perspective, they got much more visibility and they talk much more actively with their entire teams. Thank you. Heidi? I, I think absolutely all of those things that Vasco and Matt just mentioned and self-servingly because we both um, both uh, open apply and IDAT service the admissions community investment. If, if admissions and getting the right students in the right schools that you can support and develop and create these future leaders of tomorrow is important to your school, then it's also worth investing in the right tools to help the admissions team do that. They shouldn't just be othered and, oh, go get us some students, you know, and we need more students in year five, go get us some students in year five. If it means getting the right management system, if it means getting open apply, if it means getting the admissions test or benchmarking tests or whatever it is that they need to do their jobs properly. It will require everything worth doing is worth investing in. Um, Vasco said that, you know, choosing a school is an investment for a family because they're choosing everything for that child. Well, this, if, if, if you want them to invest in what you've got, you've also got to have the right tools to, to share that, that message. What about the students? So, you know, the parents coming in, you know, I'm just going to, let's pick a, an eight, nine-year-old, yeah? Uh, they, they're coming in, they're walking around the school. What is the role and how much voice and student agency in the process should admissions cater and, and facilitate for the student perspective? Because often, you know, the parents have an idea and you know, dynamics we know between parents and, and students is quite complex and it can, you know, people can have different agendas and different ideas of what school is. But talk to me a bit about the student role. What does it mean and how can it, you know, how much voice should a student have in the process? Vasco, you're shaking your head, so I'm going to go right to you. Yeah, I think the voice of, of, of the child is of tremendous importance. I mean, ultimately, they will go home and they will communicate with their parents and kind of relay what that experience was like. Of course, there might be certain perspectives that are unreasonable, like them finding a, a lesson boring that was, was not actually that boring. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, their happiness, their mental health, their kind of well-being beyond just the kind of bread and butter that you'd expect um, is of, of great importance. So it, it, it's in the school's best interest to actually uh, pay close attention to that. We, we talked about reputation earlier. I think that feeds really, really strongly into, into reputation and kind of enhancing that reputation by being more intricately tied to the students that the school admits and listening to their voice um, uh, in order to continue that, that, that positive relationship that then permeates into the family home and, and beyond. Heidi? I recently was speaking with a school here in Australia that on their open days, um, the children would uh, go to participate in 
activities with students as and you talked earlier about mentorship and i think that their experience and interactions at an admissions uh point of view needs to be tailored towards them and what it is they're looking for mom and dad are looking for them to be a doctor or a lawyer or a, the you know future um Lionel Messi, whatever it is that mom and dad are looking for, that child might be looking for something. They look, they want better monkey bars. You know, they want to know that at lunchtime that they can get chocolate chip cookies or whatever it is. And it doesn't mean that we go with one or the other because everybody has a, a, an important vested interest in what's happening here. But allowing a child to organically interact at the admissions point of view, which means talk to other students talk to admissions, talk to adults, talk to, you know, play with the equipment, be particularly for young ones, participate in a lesson, come to a sporting event, allowing them that chance to organically see what their life will be like in the school will help them make a better choice. And I think it's, it's, it's a marketing technique, but the child doesn't realize that they're just participating and they're just really getting to know what this new home, this new community will look like. Matt. International schools are such a melting pot. When you think about what a typical international student is like, very difficult, except for the slight American twang in the accent. Maybe that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, in reality, when we think about student-led processes in the education or in the pedagogy, the same should be said through the admissions process as well. We're not talking about students filling in their own application form. That is less than ideal. Um, however, <laughs> when we think about the practicalities of asking them what's important to them um new monkey bars excellent how do we then facilitate that so that student gets the best fit when they visit the school on an open day or an individual tour and i think that's really what high performing admissions teams with high conversion rates are really aiming to do it's not just this is the same thing we will show every single family it's fine-tuned it's hyper specific it's tailored individually to the needs and demands and not just the family's needs of a pool and after school care and a morning library club but the practicalities of actually we can help your child's passions thrive and take them where they need to be at the end of it and wherever they can go next it's not just another child going to stanford it's another child going to wherever they wish they want to be and the possibilities are being endless um sorry i think that agility uh matt is you know so important and i I love the way you say it It has to be fine-tuned for every family it's that personalization because nowadays uh unless the algorithms are deciding our personalization there is you know that's what people want is for you to be empathetic and understand this is a unique child this child's different from every and i love that sense of agility this is Wonderful, rich conversation, but time's running out. And I'm going to put you on the spot here because, you know, AI's, you know, we, we the, kind of 2023 was a year of AI. I don't know if Time Magazine's going to put it as the person of the year or the entity of the year. But I'm wondering, you know, often with this narrative of AI, they're saying that school's going to change. It won't be the same. Uh, you know, exams are going to be thrown out, whatever. There's just a lot going on, a lot of different perspectives and, and narratives around that. I'm curious if each one of you could kind of do a little crystal ball gazing. What are you anticipating here uh, down the road? How might things change? Or for admissions, it's it's going to continue with kind of the areas and the topics that we talked today, or do you anticipate something changing? Maybe we can start with Vasco and then to Heidi and then Matt. So I'll make a prediction, which is kind of 
biased in the sense that it aligns with my my belief or my perspective. That is, you know, when you view AI, it's easy to view it negatively from the educator's perspective in terms of content creation. You know, the fact that less effort will be put in and and and, and less work will be done, students will get more lazy. And you can certainly see those where those concerns come from. But I would look at it not from the point of content creation, but from the point of content absorption. Uh, so the prediction I will make is that schools will start to use AI for the teaching element and students will start to use it for things like creating personalized learning plans. Maybe students that are, are struggling in a traditional academic setting will actually leverage some of this technology to get that kind of bite-sized information in a more digestible format that's really hyper-personalized or tailored to, to their learning style. You know, we talk about even IDA and having the right fit and the different kind of learning styles, learning types where, where students have strengths so they might be more of a kind of visual learner or, or, or more of a, um, you know, whether it's to do with memory or anything else. So I think um, that's where that's where um, schools will really leverage AI in, in a positive way is in terms of the content absorption rather than in, in, in content creation. Thank you. Heidi. I think uh, gazing into my future, future crystal ball is that information is becoming faster and faster. Uh, you know, we, you know, John and I were talking earlier about writing letters uh, to this before this started when, when that was communication and now everything is so fast. And so I think what will happen is that it gives us more opportunity in admissions to share more information about who we are. And it means that schools will get better at what they do because your mission, we keep coming back to it, your mission, vision, and values is who you are. And you can't fake that. So as it, things get faster, students will be able to do like a virtual reality joining of the school before they come. They'll know if they're gonna fit in. Uh, the school will get have more information about each student and a profile of them coming in. They'll know how to support them from the first day. So using all of this information that is there and then learning so much more, AI is gonna tell us more. And the more information we have, what Vasco said, coming back to independent learning plans, all of these things that each student can get a much more tailored uh, experience uh, to help their and support their education. Thank you, Matt. Very much agree. It's essentially just giving everyone more context and access to that context. So, I mean, from the admissions perspective, you could definitely see it from like a full staff view and being able to pinpoint metrics that they could find a lot easier and a lot quicker. And then they can focus on the high-end aspect of quality education, differentiation for those. But conversely as well, I kind of see it also from a family perspective. What's to stop families now saying, give me the breakdown of the top 10 international schools in Hong Kong now into ChatGPT, and that will pull all the access into them with their full reviews and full rankings and NPR. So it's already there, but there's probably ways in which we're heading into much more transparency across the board and just access to all the information as well i like sorry just to add one thing i like that point that you mentioned about the kind of chat gpt quick kind of quick and dirty analysis of top 10 schools in a region that will force schools to really home in on their reputation and really iron out any kinks it will really kind of push the standard push the standard up because it will be it will be more difficult to hide you know behind you know um a wall of kind of positive reviews from like your, your close-knit community. You'd be more, things would be more transparent, basically. Quite yeah. Sponsored ads and yeah. um, review websites that are predominantly and potentially some schools offering to say, I will be at the top for doing this and it's sponsored. So yeah, just access and um, accessibility to it. Hmm. 
Great. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I feel like we've really kind of gone through the journey and learned and uh, I've learned so much. I always tell people when I do, they said, oh, you, you do these podcasts. I said, yeah, it's like my professional development. Every time I sit, I get to learn and, and really appreciate the wisdom and the guidance and the insights that uh, you three have shared with us. I want to thank all three of you for your time. I want to remind our guests Check out the show notes. Heidi, Matt, and Vasco have done a wonderful job of curating resources and things to consider. You can also follow them on social media if you want to reach out to them. Uh, we'll uh, definitely make sure that those show notes are up there. Also, I want to thank Heidi from IDAT for joining us all the way from Australia, and then Matt and Vasco from Faria Group, and also working with Open Apply. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation, and definitely, I encourage people if you have further questions. I know our guests are always very generous and kind and are happy to uh, connect. So uh, check the show notes out. And we look forward to our next episode. And thank you again for everybody's support, comments. Uh, we really appreciate the continued engagement uh, you as our audience give us. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you.